The Right Hook Podcast. Make business sense on the road with the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater SUV with low BIK, 200 euro VRT and a five-year warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie It's Thursday and this is George Hook with The Right Hook on News Talk. Here's a digest of some of the items we had on the programme today. I'm joined by the Chief Economist at the Institute of International and European Affairs, a columnist with the independent newspapers, Dan O'Brien. Dan, welcome to the program. Thank you, George. Sometimes you make you write really good stuff, and then other times you write horse manure. And this morning, I have to say, uh, it was horse manure. You, you tweeted, the death of rural Ireland is not exaggerated, it's nonsense. Yeah, well, I disagree hugely. So tell me why I'm wrong. Well, uh, you know, when people say that, it's very rare they actually put some hard evidence. People will say, you know, a town I know in or a town I live in is not going through good times, and uh, it's been difficult in my part of the country. It's been difficult in all parts of the country. Would be my, my retort to that. And that when you do look at all of the available evidence that we have about how things have developed across the entire country. There is precious little evidence to say that the recovery hasn't gone out to every corner of the country and that overall, all parts of the country are have been picking up. But but you're basing it on what, though? What are your facts to back well, up this suggestion that rural Ireland is alive and kicking? Well, population is the one I was particularly writing about today because yes. last week we had the first uh, results of the census that we all filled in back back in April. And that shows really interesting things. It shows that the population of the country is a lot bigger than the demographers expected because we've had um, much less, fewer people leaving versus people coming than was was expected. But if we, if we look around the country as well, what, what we saw over the past five years is that 23 out of the 26 counties saw their population rise. And two, Mayo and Sligo, had tiny reductions, 200 people and 50 yeah, people. But sorry, and my guest is Dan O'Brien, columnist at Independent Newspapers. But there's an interesting thing here. Let's, for argument's sake, you look at a, a county or town or whatever it happens to be. And the figure in the census says it's gone from 90,000 to 10,000. Surely, now, I'm, here's my argument. Surely, if that 100,000 has a much higher older population than the previous 90,000 had. In other words, there's a movement away from rural areas, which I believe, of younger people, then uh, rural Ireland could be in terminal decline, uh, if not dead, which is the well, point some people believe. Okay, we, ha- we haven't seen that the latest figures don't go into enough detail to yeah. let, us, let us know about that. But my, my, my overall point is that if a, if a place is still growing in the numbers of people there, Something good has got to be happening, and either new people are coming in, or you're having more babies being born. And you know, one of the reasons we do have a strong population growth in Ireland is we still have more babies than most countries. You know, if you look at Europe over the past five years, eleven of the twenty-eight countries in Europe have seen their populations actually fall. Okay, now we had one of the strongest increases, one of the biggest increases in our population over the past five years. As I say, more than most people expected, uh, and even the experts expected. So what I'm saying is that that is really in every Donegal is the only country county of the country that's seen any substantial yeah. decline in its population. Everywhere else has either been stable, and vast majority of counties have been growing. Now it's difficult to say that the that the rural Ireland is dying off if there are actually more people living All in every right, county. But for, now let's look at other stuff, George. Let's look at other yeah, stuff. Yeah, I'd like to look stuff. at other stuff. We've got yeah, things like on. car sales. We've got car sales by every county. Now, since since the, the, the depths of the recession, car sales have soared in absolutely every single county in the country, 100%, more than 100%, nearly everywhere. Now, we've got other stuff, disposable incomes, average disposable income per person in every county. Again, up in every single county, all 26. We've got, we've got information about employment and unemployment by regions of the country. Unemployment is down absolutely everywhere without exception. Employment, the numbers of people at work, up seven out of eight regions. The only region, and this is one of the few things people can point to, 
to support the idea that rural Ireland isn't doing well, the West region has not had an increase in employment. Again, about the only bit of hard evidence to say that rural Ireland is not doing well, the West region hasn't uh, been doing so well when it comes to jobs growth. But really, all of the available evidence we have, George, really does point yeah, but, to... But, no, but Dan, you're looking at it like an economist or a statistician. If you if you analyse, for argument's sake, how many guard stations there are in towns around Ireland, you know, I, I think we would agree there are less. Um, if you look at number of post offices there are around Ireland, we'd find there are less. If we'd find out how many rural pubs have closed, we'd probably find a lot of them. And if we if we looked at how the the actual small uh, retail or store corner shop is doing in rural Ireland, I think we'd find it does worse. So what I would be concerned about is not so much, and I, I wouldn't argue with a single number you've given me, what I would say is that the quality of living in rural Ireland has diminished. Okay, so you mentioned a bunch of things there. So, for example, uh, uh, fewer pubs. But that, that's true everywhere in urban areas as well, because people are just changing their habits. People drink more at home. Um, they drink wine more than beer. Like the things, things change. You talk about the post office. Again, you know, people are emailing. People use post offices less. So, you know, change happens all the time. And it can be that some of those changes result in a less good quality of life uh, and others improve it. So issues around having access to the Internet if you do have it in, in, in urban areas, in rural areas, which I completely accept is, is, a, is a major issue, that if you do have it, it means you can work in, in a rural area and do a lot of your work and have all the, the upsides of living outside a city uh, and doing some of the work that in the past you'd have to be in an office to do. So, you know, but you, you lived and worked in the United Kingdom, so definitely you travelled around a bit, but you didn't even have to travel too far necessarily out of London to see a different kind of rural life. I mean, the, the, the British village or small town has um, a vibrancy that you don't see in Irish villages or towns, yes or no? No, I don't. You know, I think it's very different. I think depending depending on on, on where you go, you can go to some you know um, some some you know not so vibrant places. In in uh, Hastings is a place that just immediately comes to mind to the south coast of 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 um, uh, just south of London is is not a particularly uh, fantastic place. And you can go to something like somewhere like Canterbury, which isn't far away, which is which is great. But equally, you know, in Ireland. Some towns have had it harder. There's no doubt. Like Tralee is a town that's had a, had a really tough t- tough recession. Westport, booming town, great um, great sense of energy in, in, in a town like Westport. So I think it does depend on the town, uh, on the on, on the place. And these things are not, you know, it's not it's not blanket. It's not uniform. But but there isn't. This is really which I think is sort of rolls straight into your bailiwick, is the issue that it is lopsided because you essentially made that point, didn't you? West versus east. Yeah. Well, that that, that there's no doubt that the, the, it tends to be the bigger areas of uh, population growth that we saw from the census last week are areas around the capital. There's no doubt about that, and there is a long-term process of of urbanisation. And that, that's universal. There's almost nowhere on the planet you'll find over over the centuries that hasn't had a, a move towards towards urban living. And, you know, part of that is that with changes in agricultural productivity and the way we produce food, you need fewer people to produce food. And, you know, in many ways, that's a good thing because the kind of work that people used to have to do, backbreaking work in fields, that's gone. That's been mechanized. And people can have... Uh, you know, better jobs, more rewarding jobs, and, and less physically uh, difficult jobs than than in the past. So I think there's, you know, a lot of these changes are actually positive, even if they will accelerate this process towards uh, towards, towards urban living over over rural living to some extent. But but I mean, the uh, my guest, by the way, is economist and columnist for the Irish Independent, Dan O'Brien. But but if you go back. Before you were born, Sean T. O'Kelly was the Irish president, and Banny Kelly, his wife, actually suggested that you know in a short time the Irish people would go back to the farms, um, and of course that never happened because you know because this was the the kind of Fianna Fáil maxim at that time that Dev all the people would be back 
speaking Irish in rural Ireland. But but world economies don't actually work like that. Young people gravitate to where there are jobs, money, and more importantly, social energy. Isn't that so? Well, absolutely, and that that goes back to, the, to to my point that it's it's absolutely universal across the world over time that people have tended to move into urban areas away from rural areas. And there's a lot of reasons. I think you, you outlined those reasons uh, there, as well as sort of broader economic change over time. So that, that has been the trend. And, you know, that's, if people want that, well, you know, are you going to stop people from, from, from moving? But I, I would say that, you know, it, it has been exaggerated in the sense that it's, it's not as though rural, rural Ireland is, is shriveling and dying. And, and, and let me just sort of look at it from a bigger perspective, George. Over the past 25 years, um, Every single county in Ireland has seen very significant population growth. Uh, if you look at Europe as a whole, the population of Europe, the 28 countries of the European Union, has only grown by 7% in a quarter of a century. In Ireland, it's five times that. And the slowest growing county, the, the county of Mayo, was nearly 20%. So the, even the slowest growing county in, in this country in terms of population was well over double okay. the European average. So it, things are not, is, is, you know, population growth has been astonishing in this country over the past quarter century and every single county has contributed to it. All right. You, you may or may not have the figures and I don't mind if you don't, but this census probably in, in the figures of vacant properties may have included specifically holiday homes, for instance. Now, in 1955, sorry for going back, the then Bishop of Cork warned the people of West Cork that selling houses to foreigners, and he meant Germans, would see the denuding of West Cork, right? Isn't there a situation also that some of the best parts of our country are essentially by people who have, uh, who only use it three, four, five months of the year. So therefore you look at the other seven, eight, nine months and it's a completely different place. I, you're absolutely right. I don't have the figures in, in, in front no, of me. No, I'm not worried about it. I mean, but in principle. Well, I, you know, I, I, I think there's ha- there has to be an advantage to some extent of, of people having holiday homes and, and bringing bringing money into into an area uh, for uh, at least a part of the year um, and a help, help helping boost the, the local economy in, in part of the year. And if there are empty houses for a good good chunk of yeah. the year, is there really a downside to that? Does no, that, I, I, that I was asking, you're the economist, I'm the uh, interrogator. Yeah, no, I, well, I'm, I'm thinking out loud, and as I yeah. say, I don't have the figures in front of me, but I, I can't, I don't see a huge, you know, I, I see why some people would say there's bungalow blight, and there could be there could be a sort of environmental right. aspect to it. But overall, you know, is it such a bad thing if people come and spend their summers in a region and invest in, in, in properties and put money into right. into the local economy over, over the course of the summer or whenever else they visit? I think that's a good thing. All right, Dan O'Brien, kind uh, of economist and columnist at the Irish Independent. Thanks so much for joining me. The right hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander seven-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie. Now, the uh, Irish Naturist Association has applied to Wexford County Council. Um, to get a designated nudist beach. We don't have one, apparently. Pat Gallagher is head of the Irish Naturist Association. He joins me now. Pat, welcome to the programme. Good evening, George. Good evening, George. Can you hear me? Hello, Pat. Can you hear me okay? Pat. Uh, Hello, Pat. Yes, Pat probably has lost... Hello? Pat has obviously left his mobile phone in his swimming trunks, which when he took him off to go swimming on the naturist beach. And uh, I think we have him. Are you there? Yes, yes. Ah, listen, you're obviously swimming in the nude. I forgot <laughs> to take my call. <laughs> I've been here all the time. <laughs> all right, now listen to me about this nudist beach down in Wexford. The first thing is... There's an age thing here. They used to be called nudist colonies, you know. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now you're not nudists anymore. You're naturists. So first of all, I'm, yeah. 
<laughs> and I'm not going to I'm not going to make fun of you, believe me. But but it's important to understand why, um, because you're looking for a beach in which you can wander around um, naked. Yep. Why would somebody want to wander around naked? I suppose the answer to that really is that it's just very natural. It's the most natural thing to do. I mean, uh, bathing trunks and the likes are just man-made inventions. Long before that, it was very natural for people swimming sunbathing or otherwise uh, in the nature, just not to wear clothing. So, I mean, basically, we've just gone back to, to that particular concept. Now, in Ireland, because you've applied for, for a designated beach in Wexford, in Ireland, presumably, if you tried to do this down in British Bay or something, uh, they'd call the cops, would they? I mean, is it, currently as it stands, is it against the law? No, because, uh, George, the laws, as they were, had been updated in 2015. Right. And uh, we have a copy here now from the minister because we had made a submission uh, prior to them updating this particular law on exposure. And in actual fact, it, it's very simple now because subsection uh, 1 simply says that uh, where the exposure is, is uh, his or her genitals intends to cause fear, distress, or alarm to another person. So you have to do it with the intent to cause uh, harm, distress, sure. or fear to another person. And that's why we would call on the county council to erect a small sign that simply says we gave them a number of options on this, you know, but something to the effect of uh, nude persons may be seen beyond this point. Now, anyone who would be... Yeah, I get it, yeah. have to, you know. Now, presumably because you are a dedicated naturist, um, you've probably gone abroad, therefore, uh, to go to designated nudist beaches. I have indeed, George. Yeah, many, and, many and, time. yeah, and people just don't pay a blind bit of notice. That's right. Yeah, it's just a norm in, in a lot of places. And I mean, uh, in countries like France, Spain, Croatia, for instance, it's government-backed, and they designate whole areas, what they call urbanizations, you know, which include... Uh, you know, uh, bars, restaurants, uh, shops, you name it, all in the one area and, and various apartment blocks and so on, you know. So you go up to super value <laughs> and naked as nature intended as well, do you? You can do, yes, oh, in, right, in, okay. in, in these areas, yes, you can. I, I listen, uh, listen, I... I uh... I hope that checkout person is naked <laughs> as well. But anyway, look, I don't want to be funny because this is quite serious. I remember, but there's also here, though, can I say, there is also like a generational thing. I mean, if, if you applied for this, say for argument's sake, 50 years ago, right, the, the bishop, first of all, would go berserk, right? Yeah. Then the first day it opens, there'd be about a thousand uh, sightseers down having a look, right? So the whole... But now, because lots of the girls, particularly on beaches anyway, are now wearing bikinis. They might as well not be wearing them. So our attitude towards bodies... It's much different, isn't it? It is. It's way different altogether. And I think uh, during the Celtic Tiger era in particular, with so many Irish uh, taking holidays abroad, people who probably never went before, and they went to places, and they seen on the beaches abroad, they seen uh, naked people and so on. And I suppose for the first day or so they were there, they were a bit amused. By the end of their holiday, they were the people lying on the beach in any event. Mm. I mean, I have to tell you, and it's, it's it's embarrassing for me, but I mean, I remember I was in Munich, and um, I went to the sauna, and of course, in in Europe, an awful lot of saunas are mixed and naked. So I'm suddenly sitting in the sauna, and there's about four women, and there's myself and another Irish fellow, like. And we don't know where to look like. We're unbelievably embarrassed. And uh, do you know what we did? This is as true as God. We started discussing the women, Oscalga, so they wouldn't know what we were talking about. But, like, that's a different era. I mean, I hope you, and, and uh, you're going to get approval, are you, from Wexford County Council? We'd like to, uh, George. Unfortunately, since we've uh, written to uh, all the councillors, including the mayor, uh, we haven't actually received any reply whatsoever even to say that um, that they had received our, our submission, our letter, you know. So, But we would like to think that the time is about right, and the sunny southeast would obviously be 
the correct destination to uh, have the first nature's beat. No, the Sunnyside Beast sounds ideal. Have you picked? You've obviously picked out a beach as well. Yeah, it's an area that has actually been used for many years. It's off the beaten track. It's at the southern end of Coracle Beach. You have to go through the woods and so on. It's quite a hike. So it's it's an area that's just been used, and it's not used by the general public. Now, the thing in America, I do have some experience with it actually being on the beaches, but a lot of uh, naturist beaches in Florida, but they are also, which really surprised me, incredibly family-friendly. So you have whole families, uh, parents and children and everything. That's correct, George, yeah. And naturism, by and large, is a a very family experience. And most of the people who join the clubs, either here or abroad or whatever, they join complete families altogether. And, and it's actually a good way of safeguarding your children because they're within your grasp all the time, you know, and they're not, they're not exposed into male-female dressing rooms yeah. where you lose contact with them and so on. Where, what is the uh, the sort of genesis? Uh, there was a fellow called George Bernard Shaw who was a famous playwright uh, and uh, Shaw in the 1930s was a naturist. That's for correct. Instance, you know, yeah. so this presumably goes back certainly to the <coughs> early part of the 20th century, does it? It certainly does and I think uh, naturism as a movement, I suppose, if you want to call it that, uh, was prior to World War One, mainly around Germany. Uh, yeah. it, it was kind of well practiced, and many clubs grew up, and they were very much into uh, exercise and body fitness and that type of thing. And in fact, the Germans are still very much into uh, body fitness and exercise and so on. You know. All right. Um, so it, it, thanks very much. Pat Gallagher there, head of the Irish Naturist Association. If I three one zero six for your text, I uh, have one which says, can we have more Catholic propaganda before you end your show on July 29th, George? How about you just say the rosary in Latin for the final 17 hours? It's a Brilliant idea. Intro Ebo ad altari day, a deum qui letificat juventutum meum. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7 seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. Mitsubishi Motors.ie uh, 68 Russian track and field athletes who were set to compete at the Olympics in Rio has been upheld by the Court of Arbitration for Sport. There is a suggestion, of course, that the Russians be banned entirely uh, from the Olympics because what is believed to have been state-sponsored, state-controlled and state-directed sports doping. I'm joined by Thomas Barr, Irish 400 metre hurdler, heading to Rio. He's based at the University of Limerick. He joins me now. Thomas, welcome to the programme. Hi, George. How are things? Good. Uh, how do you feel about this? Um, to be honest, it's it's a very kind of a harsh, um, a harsh punishment, but at the same time, I think a statement, like a, a harsh statement needed to be made um, to kind of shake up the the ground in in this doping culture that was going on, the fact that it was government led and state funded was uh, it was a big problem. Like it wasn't just individuals themselves; it was the uh, the leaders of the country that were 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 funding all this and behind it all. Well, of course, um, the the most blatant example of this before your time was East Germany, where it was a state sponsored and lives were ruined by by young athletes being forced to take drugs and so on. Now, either where there's two options, it seems to me, for internet, particularly international athletics and the Olympics, you either have a free for all in which the best pharmacist wins. Or you try and get a clean sport. And the only way you're going to get a clean sport uh, is by cracking down on it. The only problem is Russia aren't the only guilty party. You must know this from competing abroad. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Well, look, it's it's not 100% prevalent. I mean, if you know, I've never seen anybody actually taking drugs or anything like that on the international circuit or anything like that. But you do know yourself. You know, you have an idea and you have your own suspicions of people. You know, there's been a lot of question marks over other countries, not just Russia, like you mentioned. Um, that, you know, there's question marks over those countries that have been have been doping as well and that there's, 
there's question marks over I think Kenya and a couple of other ones as well and um, while while you don't actually notice anything yes there are 100% reasons as to why you would be suspicious you know you see people who come out of nowhere having not run all year or even in two years they come out of nowhere um, when it comes to major games and you know they end up coming away with medals personal bests world leads European leads and you know, you're kind of, there's question marks, and you're like, how the hell did they manage that? Yeah, but they we're not, all year. we're not exactly clean. I mean, you know, we had a, yeah. we, we had a multi-goal medalist um, who, who wasn't clean. We've had other examples of Irish athletes who, mm-hmm. who aren't clean. But the key difference, surely, is the difference between countries like Russia, and there are others, uh, yeah. Like like the Jamaican drug testing was a joke, for instance. Um, yeah, yeah. It, like exactly, that's the thing. That's the difference between, say, like Ireland and and the other countries. The fact that it was in in Ireland, it was individuals, you know, and you can nearly name the individuals on one hand at this stage that have been caught for doping in Ireland. Um, whereas the fact that in in other countries and the countries that are kind of being targeted now at the moment it's state-funded, and there's there's a lack of a good anti-doping program. Like, Ireland is one of the best countries in the world with their anti-doping program. Um, and, you know, I've been tested, I think, maybe 10, 15 times this year already, and they can show up at any time of day, wherever I am. You know, they know exactly where I am for an hour slot every day, and they can arrive within that hour slot and, and test me there. And then I don't think it's the same in, in, in a lot of other countries. I have to ask you, it's off yep. topic, but you're going down to Rio. All the golfers are terrified to go. You're obviously not worried about Zika, no? No, not really, to be honest. Um, I mean, uh, like for athletics, for track and field, and for a lot of other sports like swimming, I mean, the, the Olympics is the pinnacle of not only our, our athletics career, but probably the pinnacle of our, pinnacle of our lives. Like it's, it's the big, big event that we want to get to. Um, and maybe for golf, it's, it's, I don't know, like as Roy McIlroy came out and said there recently that like, you know, it's the yeah, Olympics absolutely. isn't the be all and end all for them, you know, so yeah. I can, can see I, why they don't want to go. Yeah, can I also go talk about your event? Um, yeah. Because um, you're a 400 meter hurdler. Um, Indeed. It believed to be, in fact, the toughest uh, of, of track and field events. Is that right? I'd like to think so anyway, yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's I know, but I mean, it, it, like the man killer, yeah. I mean, yeah. you're running 400 metres, which in effect is a long sprint. Uh, yeah. And you're also jumping over barriers. Yeah, like a 400 metres is tough enough. And then whoever decided to put 10, 10 hurdles in the way was, yeah. uh, was just dicing, really. You know this three-stride pattern you guys do? You, 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 you get three strides between each hurdle, isn't that right? It'll be for, that'll be for the short hurdles, so for the 110 for men or 100 for hurdles. And well, how many strides are strides. you taking? For me, I take 13 strides. There's 10 hurdles altogether, so 13 strides usually between the first six, and then it drops down to 14 strides. With right. But if you presumably get one stride out, yeah. you're goosed, are you? Yeah, exactly. So, like the wind conditions, fatigue, um, and 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 all that, and weather conditions and stuff, all pay a massive, massive uh, factor. Yeah. You know, I often wondered when, like, you're on the the inside lane or you're on the outside lane. Like, yeah. if you're in the outside lane, you're in front for a heck of a lot of time, but you know where the other fellas are. You have no idea. Yeah. Like, you're blind. If, you're the hair. Yeah. If you're in the inside lane, however, everybody's in front of you. So, what do you prefer? For me, um, I prefer to have, ideally I prefer a middle lane, but if I was to choose, I'd probably take an inside lane because, yeah, like you said, you have a little bit of a, an idea of where everybody else is. Yeah. Um, you haven't been to the Olympics before, have you? No, this will be my first time. My older sister, Jessie, was in uh, was in London for the 400 meter relay. She's also a 400 meter hurdler. All right. So, so, like, you're given everything for this. Yeah, pretty much. Like the last four years of training, I've been pretty much geared towards this. Really, like I've been on an upward spiral for the last couple of years, and unfortunately, this year I was I was hampered a bit with injury. Um, so I'm not really going to be as competitive as I would like. But I'm I'm going there to soak up every bit of experience I can and bring it forward into the next few years. You know. Yeah, I mean, World War Three wouldn't stop you going, obviously. 
No, God, no, not at this stage. It's, it's, <laughs> I go hell or high water. But but there is a point here, though. Like, it's quite interesting. The Russian woman who won the London Marathon, now she got she got appearance money and she got the winner's uh, check, right? Yeah. So she now owes, and they've demanded the money back, whatever yeah. it is, 30 or 40,000 euro, they've demanded the money back. So, I mean, yeah. there must be a ton of people out there who not only have lost medals because we've actually seen Irish athletes move up in the medal table as a result. Yeah. Uh, and secondly, um, people got money, which they're now going to have to pay back one, presumes. Yeah, and to be honest, the fact that they're actually forcing them to pay back this time, that's a rarity. There's a lot of occasions where you know people are, are bumped out of medal positions and bumped out yeah. of... Um, final positions and they don't get any of that reimbursement and essentially the dopers then are stealing from yeah. from other athletes in not even just in prize money but in endorsements you know the difference between coming yeah. ninth and eighth in a final is not ma- or getting to a, a final is massive you know yeah you probably don't realize you and i have a connection okay you're sponsored by did Electric. i am indeed. yeah yeah well jerry Houlihan, who set up did electrical in about 1968 he and i were uh, friends and worked together for a short time no way and it's still it's still going strong yeah there you are it still was going a, strong and it's... it was in a kind of a basement up in uh, gardner street up around there's where it started and look at They've moved now. on a little bit from that to their, their Fitbits and Nutribullets and everything now. Yeah, yeah. And if I hadn't been pally with DID Electrical, you wouldn't be going to Rio de Janeiro. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a very strong statement to make, George. Listen, <laughs> uh, best of luck. What's the time? You have to break what? 50 seconds, 49 seconds? What do you um, have to break? As in when I get out there? Yeah. To win, um, to win. To win. Oh, to win, I'd need to be probably running 47. All right, I'd be cheering so, for you. Do, yeah. Thanks a million. Cheers, George. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Well, of course, it's Cleveland is on everybody's lips in the USA because it is a Republican National Convention. And there probably hasn't been one like this for a long, long time. Last night, for instance, probably, I'm not sure, but probably for one of a very rare occasion, a speaker didn't endorse the the president-elect of America, possible president-elect of America, because Senator Ted Cruz only mentioned Donald Trump's name first. Well, I'm wondering what my next guest will make of it all. He has classic uh, Republican uh, credentials. He founded the Tea Party of America. He is co-founder of Citizens for Trump. He, he's written a great book, which you can get on Amazon, called Ego is a Teabag. And he's in Cleveland. It's Ken Crow. Ken, welcome to the program. Thank you, George. It's a pleasure to be here, my friend. Now, listen, just for Irish people listening on the radio, can you confirm you don't have two heads? <laughs> no, sir, I do not have two heads, I promise. Well, we're Good a bit point. worried about these Trump supporters. Tell me why you think um, Trump, and you've known him a long time, why Trump should be president of America. Well, Donald Trump, there, there's two Donald Trumps. Okay, there's the Donald Trump from the TV show that everybody's familiar with, where he likes to fire everybody. Then there's the real Donald Trump, and sometimes he mistakenly gets the two confused when he's on television. But Donald Trump is actually an incredibly gracious human being. I have witnessed him with senior citizens. I have witnessed him with children. I've witnessed it when when he's private or with you two or three or four or five people on one, he listens a lot more than he talks. He tends to want to know what everyone is thinking and what everyone is feeling, and he evaluates that person and he evaluates the situation. He is incredibly intelligent. He's got his finger on the pulse of the American people, and the American people are extraordinarily angry in our leadership in Washington, and they're sick of it, and they're going to replace him with an outsider, 
and they want this businessman known as Mr. Trump to turn the ship around and get it going in the right direction again, and that's what we're doing. Ken, I was at the Democratic Convention in Denver that that in 08 with Obama. The thing about these conventions, and the first one I ever saw on television was the Kennedy Democratic Convention, watching it on British television. There's an incredible party atmosphere. I mean, it might be politics and all this stuff, but it's one big party. It is, and, uh, and they're having a good time. We, we've had a few contentious moments. Probably the most contentious that's like the big elephant in the room right now that nobody's talking about is the fact that Governor John Kasich, the governor of Ohio, refuses to come to the convention, and the convention's in his own state, and he's not showing up for it. And he refuses to endorse the nominee, Mr. Trump, and uh, everybody's shaking their heads like, what is wrong with this guy? Uh, Senator Cruz this morning went to a uh, Texas delegation breakfast, and they all but harpooned him for what he said last night. I mean, they were angry. What do you think about the failure of Cruz to endorse the Republican nominee? I think he's a petulant child that lost, and he's pouting, and he's taking his toys and going home, is what we all think. There's no excuse for his conduct. None. But Kasich now, the governor of Ohio, it's quite possible, Ken, because the American election invariably swings on about four states. One of them could be Ohio. If Trump wins Ohio, he's got a real shot at being president. It's unfortunate, therefore, that the governor of the state isn't behind him. What the governor should have done was be one of the first speakers to take five minutes go to the podium, welcome the delegates to Ohio, welcome the media, welcome the world, say we love you in Cleveland, thank you for coming, have a great time, we're happy you're here, and that would have been that, and he could have done that graciously, but he refused to, and the American people are angry with him. I talked to some Ohio delegates last night, they're furious, they are embarrassed. Okay. I'm happy with your governor. The other thing over here, Ken, of course, that's been really sort of front page news, has been his wife's speech, Melania, and so many media organizations are putting her speech and Michelle Obama's speech mm-hmm. side by side and so on. How big a play is that, do you think, in this uh, debate? Well, it was when it happened, but now that the young lady that uh, what she had done was talk to Melania on the phone. Melania, apparently, according to this lady, uh, had picked out some parts of uh, Michelle Obama's speech from several years ago. said, you know, I really like this. Could you kind of include this in the speech? But, you know, fix it and brush it up and do your thing to it. Well, the girl forgot to make notes on that, and she took it verbatim. And uh, she's very remorseful. She offered a resignation yesterday. Mr. Trump refused it. So she took the sword for the mistake. And Mr. Trump said, everybody makes mistakes occasionally. It was one paragraph of the speech. And today it's a non-story. The Ted Cruz story has drowned that story out totally. And uh, its story's gone. Nobody cares anymore. Now, one of the things with Trump, love him or hate him, is, as you said to me at the beginning, he speaks with great clarity and he speaks his mind. When he first came up, because the first big one really was building a wall uh, for the Mexicans and then there was not allowing Muslims in. But the first one really was the wall. And that was the first time I think he became a real national player. What was the reaction to common garden Republicans when he talked about the wall? See, I was sitting on the second row in front of the podium when he made that speech at a Steve, Congressman Steve King event with 12 other potential candidates in January of 2015. The crowd leapt to their feet, blew the roof off the place. There was an uproarious cheer, and that's when I said this guy is going places. He's not going to be stopped. He had his finger on the pulse of the American people, and he knew the anger and the frustration 
with the illegal immigration. We love immigrants in America. We welcome the world. But do it legally. Fill your paperwork out. Come into the country. Don't swim the river and sneak in. And that's what he wants to stop. And uh, the American people were, were, okay. were gleeful over it. Well, um, his speech is going to be pretty critical, I would think, at the convention. Uh, you're 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 upbeat for the battle with Hillary, are you? Because I mean, these aren't exactly two of the most popular pe- people that America ever put up to be president. <laughs> no, sir, they're not. And uh, he's got some work to do tonight. And uh, I think he's honestly going to get it done. He knows what everybody wants to hear. He knows what the concerns are. He's going to read from the teleprompter tonight. He's not going to wing it, so hopefully we don't step you know, where we're not supposed to step tonight. All right. Just make sure he doesn't use Melania's speechwriter, will you? <laughs> I have a mighty control over that. George, <laughs> I'd be happy to. Thank you so much for joining me. Ken Crow, founder of the Tea Party of America and co-founder of Citizens for Trump. Ken was speaking to us from the Republican Convention in Cleveland, Ohio. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie one in eight children in Ireland are living in constant, uh, consistent poverty, and 78,000 children availing of state-funded breakfast clubs. I'm joined in the studio by senior policy analyst with TASC, that's T-A-S-C, Rory Hearn. What's TASC, first of all? TASC is an independent think tank that researches economic inequality and democracy. Okay. Now, there's nothing more unequal than hungry children. I mean, that's a real barometer of of that. We don't tend to think that we have children who are in real poverty. One in eight? Yeah, one, it, it, the figures are really shocking. Um, okay, let me have them. Well, the, the, if we look at it, the numbers, the percentage of children who are in consistent poverty um, has risen from just over 6% in 2007 before the crash and austerity and the recession. It is now 11%. The figure then for deprivation, which is children who are affected by various forms of either food poverty, that is, you know, unable um, in terms of having a hot meal. It is uh, families who haven't been able to heat their home in the last month. It is families who haven't been able to invite friends over, who can't afford new clothes, who can't afford to replace. And all basic, very, very basic things. That is now 36%. A third of our children are ah, affected. No, no, sorry. It is. You can't that, be serious. That yeah. A third of our children, children are, affected, are in that kind of that, situation. They, they are affected by two of those 11 metrics of deprivation. And I think what people haven't really seen is or realised is the impact that austerity and the recession had and had on particular groups like children. Okay. Now, my guest remembers Dr. Rory Hearn. Um, the, the, the question, Dr. Herndo, is this, that you know this great phrase, the poor are always with us, right? I think people can understand that there would be poor people. You know, it's hard in a capitalist world that you don't have poor people. But when you have a figure like 36% that you quote, that means that you have children who you say are in deprivation who might be living in... Uh, not a, or 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 a assessment of what poverty stricken neighbourhoods or poverty stricken families is that the case? Well, the the what it tells us is that straight up the number of children who are experiencing poverty and deprivation dramatically increased during the last seven or eight years, and that. But you would expect that though, if you have a crash. Well, you would, but the the thing has been that other measures have gotten... So other countries like, you know, Greece and Portugal who went through similar crisis similarly had increases in child poverty. But I suppose the significant finding what, and what we're highlighting in this report is that in the first two years of the recovery, 
this figure hasn't dropped and has remained high. And so it raises major questions about the type of the recovery, what's happening. Well, there. how would and you do it? I mean, if there is a recovery, like I had Dan O'Brien, economist, on at five o'clock and he was quoting figures about employment, about car sales, you know, all these economic indicators mm-hmm. says great, 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 great. Mm-hmm. Now, how can you have those figures and your figures? Mm-hmm. How, how do you have that? Well, I suppose, how do you have the difference? It's very clear that if you look at, for example, other uh, indicators of inequality, and I suppose it's important to put it in context, like why we're looking at economic inequality is we all know that globally over the last two decades, there's been this dramatic rise in terms of the super wealthy, the global, um, you know, elite. We've had studies looking at countries that are very unequal, have worse outcomes in terms of all indicators. Um, And in Ireland, the same case. So, for example, over the last five years, in terms of there was an increase. So people who were in employment, there was an increase in income went to those people. But if you look at how it was divvied up, the top 10 percent got 50 percent of that increase in income. So what we have, and, and that's alongside structural inequalities in Ireland, like, for example, wealth. Um, the top 10 percent have half of all the wealth. The bottom 50 percent have five percent of the wealth in Ireland. So you have during the recovery, we see and we know it that there's this kind of growth in a small number of very high paid jobs and then a significant growth in jobs at the very bottom. Low paid is a major issue around low pay employment, what's called precarious employment. And at the same time, we've had cuts to things like welfare supports. And a very interesting statistic is that half of the country would be in poverty would be at risk of poverty if we didn't have various forms of social transfers. That goes from child benefit. And people think often think that welfare is just for the very poor. Half, you know, the majority of people who have, anybody who has children receives child benefit. There's family income supports. There's lots of different supports that come from the state to people. And so, and that, that percentage, half the population now without state support. But isn't that the reason why modern, I mean, isn't that the reason modern democracies have social welfare? That because they are caring about their citizens, mm. they have supports for them, isn't well, that so? exactly, that's the whole point. It shows that actually our social welfare system works and it shows that well, public would you services increase play. It then? Well, I think, yeah, because if you look at, for example, and I suppose there's broader things to look at as well. Ireland is, and we don't have to understand, Ireland is not as unequal as the States, for example. Clearly, we have a better social welfare system, we have better public services. But if we compare ourselves to the Nordics, the Denmarks, the Sweden, we are a lot less equal because we provide a lot less public services. Sorry, you've upset me now, okay, right? But I just uh, want no, to, but I, no, no, but as soon as you say Norway and Sweden, right? They're the yardstick for everybody. No matter what we're talking about, somebody will say about Sweden. But the point is that their tax structures are much higher than ours. If we have a government that says we're not going to implement Swedish tax structures, they won't get elected. But you see, I think that's where uh, Irish opinion and public opinion is changing. Because if you look at the election, people were offered the cut to the USC yeah, as the main yeah. you know, policy proposal yes. of the, the outgoing government. People rejected that. And various opinion polls that ask people specifically, what's your priority? Is it housing crisis? Is it investment in health? Or is the tax cuts and people went for health and housing because there's been a realisation a very harsh and this is what the figures on child poverty show people are really suffering and they need a proper you know accessible cheap public health system Childcare is another example. We have the second highest yeah, childcare cost in the OECD. People know they can't afford it, you know, and particularly people at the lower end can't afford to go to work because they can't afford to get childcare. Lone parents, in particular, affected by that. So you have but to it, see. But that, that goes. This was my point to make to you earlier on. Right? You sorry, said, yeah, go on. Sorry, no. Go ahead, and just in terms do. of our tax, and yeah. you are right to say that that Ireland actually, and these other figures we show, we've two startling uh, figures. Ireland now has the lowest public investments. That's in all public service and infrastructure in as a percentage of our GDP and this is before the crazy GDP of this yeah, year yeah, yeah. but uh, of last year um, in the EU we also have the lowest general revenue tax take in the EU so we have what's actually called quite a neoliberal market private model that Absolutely. is low tax low wages and low public spending. And people are realising that... I mean, George Bush would get elected here in a heartbeat because the that t- the American theory wor- would work. We want more tax and, and but all that But I think that that's what of. people thought during the Celtic Tiger. 
and that's what I think is But you think there's a change. There is a but, change because people realise they right, need public services. Let me ask you this, right? Because if you talk to somebody like me who grew up in the 40s and the 50s, and there's tons of people like me live in this country, right? We were poor because we were a poor nation. And we went to school hungry and we had holes in the sole of our shoes and all those things. Now, why did so many of the children of the 40s and 50s, and you can do this across the world, where people oh, like the Irish who went to America or the Italians or whatever, they overcame crushing poverty for the next generation to be successful. Why do these figures mean that there's going to be a very bad outcome? Well, I suppose there's two two responses to your question. One is a historical analysis, which is that in part why your generation um, has had children who've been able to go to college. Um, now, there is, and obviously, because the whole point is there's another generation has come on now that can't afford to buy yes. housing, that can't, there's paying yeah. huge fees for college. Your children or your generation was in the golden age of what's called social democracy and capitalism. Those, the 50s, 60s, 70s. And what was the difference then to capitalism today? The state played a much bigger role. Public services were provided markets were regulated. What has happened since the 1980s is with the Thatcher and Reagan revolution of, you know, let the markets rip, let capital do what it wants, let it, you know, move to sure. wherever it wants. So there's this, and this is part of the, the argument we're making, there's the structure of our economy now, and the fame, and I'm sure you've heard the economist, you know, um, Thomas Piketty, who has made the case that, you know, the, the nature of capitalism today is one in which wealth has been created in the financial sector, but it's not real wealth. It's going to a minority... And what's happening is to the rest of the economy and for the rest of the people, things have stagnated. But But just to come back to the issue of the impact of poverty. Yeah, tell me about the impact on a child child, who is impoverished. And it's really important to two things in this. One is relativity. So the issue of the impact, for example, children from uh, poorer backgrounds at age 13, they were asked a question, do you expect, what level of education do you expect to achieve? A third of children from lower socioeconomic backgrounds said their highest level of expectation was to go to, only a third said third level, a third of them. When you ask people from higher backgrounds, it was two thirds of them at age 13 said, we will go to third level. That's the way you see class inequalities and social, these inequalities put in place. But also at these educational tests, which are done at age nine months, all children broadly get equal results, you know, dependent on their abilities, but irrespective of income background. When you move to age three, a differentiation starts. When you go to age 9, age 13, this gap grows But between you see, I don't think anybody's disagreeing with that. Where did this agreement... Do we, yeah, well, do we that's want to my change question, this? Do we yeah. want to address it? Do we, yeah. Are we accepting that this level of child poverty, deprivation, inequality is just part of the, the country and the way we are and our model? Or do we want to do something well, different? Well, if you look at the United Kingdom, the one party that might, because that's the way it has been since its foundation, the Labour Party, you look at the Labour Party in this country, which would have a similar social outlook, both of them are destroyed. So the people in Britain vote for the Tories. Essentially, the opinion polls are saying the people vote for either Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil. More than half the people in this country are based on opinion poll for, for the same old, same old. Well, I'm not, I'm not, I'm actually with you. I'm not against you. But it's same old, same old. And how do we change it? And that's the challenge for your next meeting with me when I call in September <laughs> on the new uh, Hook programme from midday 2pm. My I look guest, forward to it, George. Uh, Dr. Rory Hearn, and he'll save the world.